Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item for 2022. My name's Tom Radley. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. We're looking down the barrel of uh, several elections in Australia this year, not, not the least of which will be a federal election. And it is at times difficult for people to understand what things actually matter in the electoral context, um, whether that's to do with 24-7 news cycles or wherever else. But what the eternal question is, what are the issues that resonate most with voters? I've got someone who's uniquely placed to talk about this, uh, one of the directors of Redbridge Group, uh, a research company here in Australia, Cosmos uh, Samaras, who we've known for his friends and colleagues as Cos. He's got a very interesting career in the political space as well as um, the analytical space. And he'll take us through some of the things that might be useful for us as we reflect on what's going to happen in the next 12 months. Cos, thank you for joining me. G'day, Tom. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. Uh, now, you're a known quantity to people in the political space yep. and to people in journalism. Uh, There'll be those who don't know you uh, who pick this up and listen to it online. How does your career look if you had to describe it on the back of an envelope to somebody who's never met you before? Bit of an iconoclast. So basically, <clears throat> started off in started off in advertising, um, graphic design. Uh, stumbled into politics. I've always had an interest in politics. Stumbled into politics. Found out that I was. Uh, very suited to helping the left side of politics, being Labor, uh, at winning marginal seat campaigns, using the skills that I acquired in advertising and marketing. Um, student of history, endurance athlete, <clears throat> um, deputy campaign director for the Victorian Labor Party for 14 years, um, and now obviously director of Redbridge. Australia. It's a little summary, quick one. <laughs> what before we go into the issues of substance that we're going to confront in the next of the while, what drew you to politics in the first place? What was the thing that, 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 that oh, had that the magnetic yeah. pull for, for you? Look, that's a philosophical I would say that's a it's, it's a question that probably requires a philosophical answer, potentially. <laughs> Is it in my DNA? Is it something that was uh, that I acquired as growing up, as a um, as uh, it being impressed on me by my mum, who was quite and still is very politically astute and aware of the the world around her. Uh, her dad was a, a partisan in Greece during the Second World War uh, for the Germans, very left wing. Uh, was imprisoned um, in. Uh, uh, during the uh, Greek Civil War, because he fought on the side of the communists, he was exiled to an island for two years, tortured, eventually released. Um, yeah, so I come from a family that has got a very long history in, in politics. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I was growing up uh, amongst uh, very working class Greeks, but all of them were very acutely aware of their station in life and uh, who they preferred uh, in the political world. 
so to speak. So kind of like, um, yeah, I'll say that is it in my DNA? Was it something that I grew up with? I don't know. But I, by the time I was in my teens, was acutely uh, aware of issues that concerned me and not my, issues that I thought were important. Uh, and they were obviously of the left-wing side of politics. You can't pinpoint single influence. It's a I don't think, I don't think a, yeah. A salad bowl of no. different things. I, I, I would say that, yeah, that there are that there would be a, a, a number of milestones through one's life where you could say that was a turning point which made me realise I should get active or and so on. I would say there are there were numerous stepping stones in my life that led to me being active. You know, um, and active when I say active, you know, an escalation of my activity. Okay. Yeah, so there wasn't a particular election result. You know, I was particularly motivated to get active after the uh, the um, situation in the Balkans, for example, in the early nineties. You know, when we saw the uh, the gross human violate uh, human rights violations, the slaughter of women and children um, by Serb and Croats against the Muslim population at that time. Um, that angered me enough to get either more active. Then there were other events during that time which you know, um, incentivised me to take that next step. So there's a number of events through life. Yeah, okay, it, it just accumulates and builds. I know that then. Yeah, in the that's right. Yeah. yeah. The, if we turn to where we are at today, um, and if we do a, as best as we can an environmental scan, you know, in what is a complex environment, mm. what um, at a national level, uh, what do you consider to be the most critical issues at the as we head into? Yeah, the 2022 election. The most critical issues. So if you were to ask the Australian public that question, you would get hundreds of different answers. But it will be the same tone. And that tone's about this realisation as a country that I think the electorate is, is awakening to, this realisation that this pandemic that uh, we, we thought would be over in six months is going to be with us for a number of years, that the country has to be uh, more self-sufficient, that the voting public in this country want leaders who are going to be mature about helping them get through this, helping the country get through this. I think a lot of the anxiety we see in the electorate whether we see it online or expressed in other another forums, is really a manifestation of, of a of a perception within the electorate that the political class is really not up to the task. Right? It's akin to basically waking up one morning in 1941 and realizing the people that are running your country aren't going to actually pull off the job for you. Right? I mean, I used an analogy uh, I just tweeted earlier today about. Um, 
uh, you know, uh, in 1939, uh, for every 37 German adults, there was one car. For every three American adults, there was one car. And that was an omen of what was, what was to come in terms of manufacturing capacity uh, and what was going to befall the, the Axis powers. Because here you have a situation where every country at that time was facing the existential crisis. And there was one country that was perfectly suited to fight this, that particular war. Now, you would say we're in the middle of war right now. Well, we are. And it's different. It's not, obviously, it doesn't involve armies, but it involves a whole range of other logistical requirements, largely health, economic, a whole range of issues. And, and I think most Australians, if you were to ask them, do, do, the, do they think this country is uh, well suited and prepared to fight that war that will now go on for several more years? The answer is no. And that's what is really the bedrock of what we're seeing across the entire electorate. Now, when you put people into focus groups, as we do, we did 260 of them last year across the country, and we talk to these people, they'll, give us, they'll express that anxiety in very different ways. But the bedrock is that problem. I hope that's uh, not, too, not too confusing, but I think that's what we're dealing with. Uh, and is do I sort of sum it up correctly by saying the pandemic will shape or has shaped people's attitudes towards the political class, irrespective of the party that's in government, whether it's federal or state? I would say that yes. I mean, it's it's. We are seeing people who are crossing political rivers. So, you know, people who voted Liberal all their lives and now going to be voting for a left-wing party and vice versa. We're seeing bits and pieces of, of the major parties chip off and go into, into what I'll call the, the, um, uh, the, the Palmer United sort of coalition. Now, coalitions, one nation, Palmer United, independence, that sort of cauldron. The, the minor parties typically protest vote type. Yeah, I wouldn't. It, it, it would be, I think, incorrect going forward to describe these these as protest votes. They are more an expression of of people's growing perception within politics in this country that uh, the current political system does not quench their concern. Okay, so it, previously, in previous elections, we mm. talked about One Nation, yep, uh, Palmer United, United Australia, whatever, whatever brand mm. he slipped on himself. Yes, the Catter, yep, Catter, Catter up in Queensland, right. um, and others that have arisen from time to time, including the Liberal Democrats. We've tended philosophically to call them protest, yeah, the places where people protest as opposed to places where people you know, define their ideology their their current state of ideology by. Yep. That's right, correct. They they're so, finding a new home. A new political home. And that home is going to be permanent. 
I think they are at this stage not really fixated on what that new home looks like. You know, they've gone and bought a new new political home and they're, they're living in it. They're just not sure what it looks like and they don't really care. They just don't want to live in the old ones. Right? And, you know, that, that, that Palmer vote, for example, is going to have many different shades of, of colour to it. There'll be some red, there'll be some blue, there'll be some green, there'll be some orange from Palmer, from One Nation. Um, and it's going to be, I think, a permanent fixture on the political landscape going forward. Is this are we are we seeing a disaffection in that in that space? Um, it's difficult to, to sort of to capture the in the back of your, well, certainly in my yeah. mind, how permanent that ship's going to be, and, and and it may be that 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 you can't assess it at this point. Yeah, I think the term disaffection is a term that's that comes from a, a perception. That our two two party system is is a permanent fixture in politics. You know, I think you know, Tom, you're a student of political history, and, and you know that political parties come and go. And although these two, I mean, the Liberal Party's really only been around post Second World War, right? It hasn't been around all that long, but Labor's been around for quite some time. Okay. Um, and you know, I would say that. The economic winds that were sweeping through the world in the early 1900s spawned political parties like Labor. There are now economic and social winds that are, that are sweeping through the through the world, and they are cultural as well. Uh, that are going to be spawning other things, and I think this is where, if you're on the left side of politics, you know my the political party I have an affiliation with, which is Labor, uh, that should concern you because that. What we're seeing is the same seismic shift within uh, communities, towns, cities, uh, not just in this country, but across the Western world in particular, uh, where we're seeing permanent shifts, shifts away from previous voting um, behaviours, and they're not coming back. If we're thinking strategically, um, and you're in, for want of a better term, establishment red and establishment blue in this country. Yeah. The way we regard uh, yeah, that's right. yep. Liberal and Labor. Yep. If you're losing, if you're sort of losing the support uh, from one quarter, how do you then? Where do you then have to go to replenish that? It's a complex uh, challenge. So it's not just we must appeal to X, we must democratise our internal party structures, which is the usual trope you hear all the time. Every time there's an existential problem, it's, it's, it, the remedy is almost, uh, almost instantly all about internal politics in terms of how parties function internally. Um, that is not really the problem. The problem is that uh, we're all creatures of the world that we grew up in and the current generation of politicians are creatures of the world they grew up in. So they're only really used to dealing with problems of that world. Well, we're dealing with 
a, a political world that is now quite different to the world they grew up in. If you want to use examples of history, you just go look at the Whigs, for example, right, in the UK uh, or in the US. You know, that party's no longer around. It was replaced uh, and crushed by, uh, by, by political parties that were born out of the Industrial Revolution, Labor being one of them, right? Um, I think we're seeing the same thing now. Now, if you're on the Labor side or on the Liberal side and you're thinking, well, how do we deal with this? Quite radical changes need to take place. Radical changes. Um, people are looking for inspiration as well, so there is a solution there, and that is to, they, they are looking for, now I use this term all the time, they're, they're, not, they're no longer looking for a safe pair of hands. They want a JFK. You would say that the American public in 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 the uh, early '60s, when they when they elected uh, John F. Kennedy, weren't exactly they didn't have a view that he was a safe pair of hands, right? He was inspirational, he was cavalier, he was going to, you know, he had a spine. Um, he was going to make decisions they didn't necessarily or always agree with, but he made them for the interest of the country, that sort of stuff. They don't want someone who's going to focus group something to death. Right? They want someone that they believe is going to lead them into this new, uncertain political um, and economic world that, that, that the pandemic is, 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 uh, is creating. It, it, you paint an interesting picture of a climate where it seems um, that the quest for power from the establishment parties um, is seems to be the focus and they, they, they seem to be incapable of uh, moving or morphing quickly enough to suit to to accommodate the, the changing electoral vibe yeah I would say that I mean if you think about again we're going to use history as a reference point to, 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 to help us answer that, that, that point you make or that question. If you look at um, how ex extinguished political parties responded to existential crisis, they, their response was very similar. It was, it was mechanical. It was procedural. They used the tools that they were armed with at that time to try to solve a problem which uh, they were not used to so trying to solve. And um, I think, you know, if the major political parties are going to try to repair that, that fraying of, that, of their vote, the surgery needs to be quite radical. Um, I don't see these, these voters coming back um, permanently. You might get them back in certain waves. You might get them back in certain elections, but by and large, I think uh, over time we'll see a increase of volatility within the electoral landscape. Earlier on, you mentioned part of your expertise, if you like, was sort of winning, helping Labor win marginal, marginal seat elections. It's and that fascinates me because 
that is where that is where the wars won, if I can use that yeah. phrase. Um, how different when you look at the national scene? You've got a particular particular cohort electorally. When you go down to the state level, which is where you'd probably be running a Senate campaign, right? Mm. There's something else happening within that border. What happens when you're sitting there looking at a at a marginal seat? How granular do you need to get in terms of communication, in terms of initiatives and policy? So I would say that the country is made up of about over a dozen different electorates. Right? When I say de- electorates, I use a term from to, to define different type of geographic constituencies. You know, you have okay. northern you have northern Tassie, Southern Tassie, the two are the two are different. Right? You have uh, southeastern Queensland, northern Queensland, and even in northern Queensland you have different, you know, pockets that are different. Qu- Queensland's a, a country in parochial. itself, isn't it? That's right, exactly. <laughs> then you have WA, obviously. Uh, you have you have um, Central New South Wales, the Hunter, Western Sydney. Uh, in Melbourne, you have Melbourne's uh, outer southeast. It's regional seats, um, and we can go across the country and we we can pick these sort of different pockets out. And then within those pockets, there are obviously marginal seats. And within those marginal seats, uh, if you wanted to know how we used, I mean, how I used to do it, it would be straight to the street level. It would be street by street, door by door. Now, the problem here is that the only way you're going to move someone's vote, in my opinion, and this is what we used to do, is you work at it for three or four years. Because people are not fickle. They will form political views over a long period of time uh, and then after they make a decision to move, it's very hard getting them back. So I used to always use this term that swinging voters are like an oil tanker in the bay pivoting on its axle, on its axis. It takes a bloody long time to move it, but once it's moved, it takes a bloody long time to bring it back again. So if you lose them, getting them back is very, very hard. Very hard. And you could see that problem that Labor has faced nationally. Its primaries never seen anything north of really 35 since 2010. And in Victoria, the Liberal Party's primary has not seen north of anything worth of 32% at a state level since 2010, probably even before that. But 2010 was an outlier for them. But by and large, they've hung around the mid-30s, low-30s. And ever since 2010, they've basically been sitting in the low 30s and they really have not moved. So, you know, um, over that 10, 20 year period, let's, let, let's take that 20 year period, just in Victoria alone, there have been, I think, you know, in excess of a million voters that have jumped on the roll. There's been another 500,000 have died, right? So you get this churn, right, that, that's occurring at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's, um, a very complex problem, but if you're in the marginal seat game and you're trying to win these seats, your strategy shouldn't be about 33 days. It should be about four years. 
three years longer. That is a point that is interesting to me as someone that, that, that writes about the policy and politics and various things. Um, to what extent uh, do you think people in politics have failed to do what you suggest, which is you know, your, your next campaign literally starts the day after an election absolutely 100%. as opposed to as opposed to i'm um uh the prime minister's called an election we've got 33 days to win that's when people's in pardon the language bullshit radar goes up so there's a lot of money spent in that 33 day period and yes there are undecided voters but in reality you, there'll be people that will tell you i made up my mind in the last minute but put them in a room with me and my colleague for an hour and a half, and I'll tell and I'll show you they're not actually really undecided voters. Right? There are strong every every one of us has very strong underlying structures to our personality and how we view the world. And yep. and and so these individuals are not just sitting there going, Oh, well, I might vote blue today or green tomorrow or red red, you know, and so on. No, no, no. It's that they have formed political views over a long period of time. And yes, they may opt for one over the other, but it becomes more and more difficult for political parties to appeal to an ever decreasing number of voters who really are actually are making up their minds in the limit they are. The real damage to you as a political party or the advantage to you as a political party is in that three-year period. So, um, yeah, my my mantra always was, you know, when I was working as a party official, I would turn up after an election, February. The caucus is still exhausted and say, right, we're starting. And they would just want to, you know, shoot me there and there on the spot because <laughs> <Right? laughs> they're still exhausted. <laughs> So, right, guys, we're about to start the next campaign. And, um, yeah, they, uh, I wasn't a fan for about a month, and they got it. They got used to it. They got used to it. But, the, look, um, yeah, sorry, go on, Tom. I know that, that it, it, there is an interesting point in the analysis there. Not only is there a need for the political, political machines to think about the campaign starting the minute the, the election results declared. Is there also a need for the public to think differently about the political climate? Because we've got, uh, we've now got 24-7 um, coverage of everything. You know, it, Scott Morrison or Anthony Albanese scratched their you know, knee on a twig somewhere. It'll be all over Twitter all over Facebook, it'll be the headline story in a news bulletin, right? Um, to what extent do, do you think the voters you've spoken to the, the, in the focus group appreciate that rolling nature of campaigning now? They don't, they don't absorb it. They, they, um, 
you know, things that uh, I think the that there is almost now uh, 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 when you look at the if we look at things politically, there is a community that is largely made up of media politicians, people interested in politics, and that's a that's a certain percentage of society, and they basically write and commentate and argue and debate amongst themselves in a bubble. Now, I know Morrison's used the term bubble, but he's very much a captive of that as well. So it's not really a bubble as in it doesn't mean anything to anyone else outside of it. It's just that no one's listening because they're, they're not interested. They're not going to pay attention to it. They, you know, when there's scandals on either side of politics, the, the public's response to it is, oh, they ought to do it. You know, that's what I expect of politicians because really in reality, they see that in their workplace. You know, I know a lot of punters' response will be, oh, yeah, if I behave like that in my workplace, I'll get the sack. That is true for them. But they know that they're really powerful within the corporate world and so on. They have a suspicion uh, that they behave in the same way. They just think that's the society they're living in. If you look at Hollywood popular culture, how many movies are made on that on, on, on topics of you know corruption um, infidelity, infidelity fraud. fraud it's just thrilled they are they are they are fed this diet from the time they are able to watch TV well I mean look at look at classic cinema uh, yeah cinema pieces uh, what did I watch the other day uh, casino yeah Robert de Niro. Mm. Um, Sharon Stone, Joe Pesci. He wins up a bit of a mess in that film, of course. But yeah, and then you look at the the scenes with politicians and yeah, the, the wooing of polit politicians in that space, um, and all of that kind of stuff. You know, wag the dog with uh, I think it was Dustin Hoffman. Yep. The, the sort of the cynicism about the way in which messaging is used. Um, you could even use more contemporary productions. There are many of them. Many okay. of them, right? I grew um, I grew up with the yes minister and the yes prime minister, and I still watch the box set. That's right. <laughs> still but, watch the box yeah. set completely once every year. It um, right. it was my induction to the way bureaucrats operate. I think uh, I was. I think you and I were liaising uh, um, via text message about. Um, the movie Don't Look Up. You yeah. Know, I thought it was a great parody of um, just how fragmented our society is and how everything is consumed and digested and spat out. And, um, you know, if I was to talk to a young person and I'll tell them, look, don't, don't bother watching West Wing. Don't, don't do that. Either watch that, that movie or go and watch uh, um, a Kevin Spacey, uh, um, you know, House of Cards, because that that will give you a much more realistic insight as to what's really going on, and that's why you know, when I'm involved, yeah, those of us who are involved in politics sometimes laugh when we hear conspiracy theorists have these great elaborate, you know, setups that the political class are getting up. You know, they, they, they've done this on purpose, and no, no, no. If you worked in this in the industry, you just know no one's really capable of that sort of organizational capacity. <laughs> it's just, yeah. they're just not that bright. <laughs> well, they're not that organised. 
So they're bright, but they're not organised, right? It, you know, it's just, yeah, it's impossible to pull off some of the stuff that these people are, uh, are conjuring up in their own minds that governments are up to. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, the... Which leads me to uh, a couple of some concluding points, if we can do that. I know yep. we're, uh, we're, we're coming close to time. The... You analyse the attitudes people have, you look at the media, you do all of that stuff. Now, what is it that, you know, what is it that you see the media doing at the moment that is perhaps not helping the voter understand the climate? I think the media's got the same challenge that political class have. Um, the, generally speaking, the public don't trust what's printed, what's reported. Uh, I, I won't say it's necessarily the media's fault. I think it is the fragmentation of all the communication platforms that are now available to all of us and have been for, I would say, 15 good, 15, good 15 years. Okay. So people now go out and source out their own information. And we all know that human nature will always ensure that, you know, for example, the news I look for, if I was just to be an, the average layperson, not someone whose job is to study politics, okay. I'd gravitate towards listening, reading to content that appeals to my biases, right? And so that's exactly what's happening. You've seen this fragmentation of the media um, environment and the, but then when you ask voters, what do you think of the media? They say, oh, I don't trust them. They're up, they've got their own agendas. That's code for I only, I only listen to the media that appeals to my prejudice. Thank you very or, much. Or <laughs> I hang out with my mates on a Telegram channel that tells exactly. me yeah. it tells me you know that the government is corrupt. Yeah. Vaccines are not good. Yeah, right. um, the um, yeah, lizard people are running the world. That's right, yeah, there's there underground a, tunnels under, under the parliaments of, of Victoria and Canberra and New and South Wales. Well, the underground, it's the underground tunnels, <laughs> yes, right. and then there's the um, the fact that the elections get stolen yep. and people, uh, apparently the AEC at one point had to clarify that it doesn't use Dominion voting machines. Yeah. So we're in a we're in a strange sort of space. That's right. Um, where, yeah, I guess the the next question being, yeah, having said the media is not trusted, and I, this is possibly a, a complex one to deal with. Simply, um, how do you get that back? But what what needs to happen to start to uh, get people to trust what they see? That's a difficult question to answer because it will be the same question. Let's say you asked someone in the early nineteen hundreds how they uh, how will they deal with the challenges that have been thrown at them. 
as a result of the rapid technological changes of the Industrial Revolution. Yep. How are you going to address the world in 20 years' time? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> I think the same, the same applies now. Now, I think the only advice I would ever give anyone is that, hey, just be nimble and be quick. <laughs> right? that's, the, that's the problem. It's a, it's a rapidly changing environment. Well, it's, it's been an interesting discussion, and I hope we can have another one reasonably Absolutely, soon. Tom. But uh, thank you. I've been talking to uh, Cosmos Semeris, otherwise known as Cos, who's one of the directors of Bridge, the Redbridge Group that looks at you know, the attitudes of people and, and, and investigates how people are thinking at the moment. Thank you so much for joining me. Where do people find you if they want to know more about? Twitter. Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter or on Facebook. Just search under my name, Cos Samaris, and you'll find me. And the, and the company website is Redbridge. Uh, Redbridge Group. Uh, type that in, it will come up on Google. No problem at all. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you for joining me, Cos. No worries. Thank you.